0: Welcome to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. It's been called the forbidden experiment, an experiment that lots of people have wanted to run, but that ethically you obviously can't.
1: So like if you were a mad scientist, which, you know, some people have accused me of being. So if you're a mad (laughs) scientist, the kind of experiment you would love to do is to take some children that were acultural and never been taught anything and abandon them on an island, you know, with food and other resources, and then you know, come back 20 years later and after they grew up and and sort of see, you know, what kind of society did they make?
0: That's Nicholas Christakis, a doctor and sociologist who studies human nature. And the question of how good we are innately, how readily we form cultures and connections and language, those questions are hard to answer because, of course, we're already part of pre-existing societies. Language is thrown at us pretty much from day one which explains why, for thousands of years, people have wanted to do that forbidden experiment, even though, again, you can't, generally speaking.
1: But it hasn't stopped very powerful monarchs for millennia from thinking about and conducting variants of this experiment. So, for example, the Egyptian pharaoh the I had this experiment in mind, and a Scottish king in the 15th century had this experiment in mind and, and did them. And what they typically would do is they would take babies... They typically framed the experiment as curiosity about what kind of language was innate. And so what they would do is they would take a couple of babies and they would give them to a mute shepherd, like up in the mountains, to raise, to see what kind of language the babies spoke naturally.
0: Now, if this seems insane, it is. And to add to the insanity, as Christakis told me, the Scottish king wanted to know what the language of Adam and Eve was, which he thought the babies would tell him, because that's what would come naturally to them.
1: And allegedly, those children, when they were raised, uh, according to the accounts, you know, spoke passable Hebrew. What's the conclusion that they drew?
0: Passable Hebrew, just from nothing, from huh? Nothing. They just yes, exactly. we just innately the... know Hebrew. That's amazing. <laughs> exactly.
1: This was this was the the innate language, according, you know, because of course it was framed as a as a religious question, but obviously we can't do this experiment. So so I was looking for what I would consider to be natural proxies for this experiment.
0: What Christakis found as proxies were a series of unintentional community-building exercises, shipwrecks, which took place over hundreds of years and repeatedly forced people to create societies almost from nothing in places that were generally desolate and foreign to them. Christakis, who's a professor at Yale and the author of the book, Blueprint, The Evolutionary Origins of a Good Society, wanted to know how we act when the chips are down, what our instincts are about helping each other, and how we construct functional groups.
1: The shipwreck accounts are just astonishing in their brutality. You know, people are in the in the boat one moment and the next the boat is being blown to smithereens, they'll say, atomized within an hour. Uh, half the people die. The rest are cast ashore, often naked. You know, the, the surf is so dramatic. They're stripped as they land, injured oftentimes.
0: Amazingly, Two of the shipwrecks that he studied happened on the very same small island near New Zealand, just a few months apart.
1: So on the south of the island, you have the Grafton, which wrecks five men put ashore. And they survive for about two years. And they cooperate. They work well together. They're friendly with each other.
0: That was January 1864. Four months later, in May, another ship wrecks.
1: And there, 19 people set ashore And all but three of them die. There is a case of cannibalism, and they are unable to form a functional society. I mean, one of the amazing things about these two wrecks is they begin with very contrastic opening overtures.
0: At the beginning, the crew of the Grafton had to help get a very sick colleague out of the ship. It was a difficult and dangerous operation to bring him to shore, and it meant working as a group. The Inverco, meanwhile also had a member who struggled at the beginning.
1: And they have to now climb this cliff to escape this beachhead where they're at. And I've looked at photographs of it. It's quite a steep cliff. And they abandon one of their men to die at the foot of the cliff. And so this wreck begins with the opposite. Instead of saving a life, the sacrificing of a life. And I think that sets the stage, this plus some other things, for the very differing fate of the Inverco compared to the Grafton.
0: The five people on board the Grafton, who, by the way, were from five different countries, did build a shockingly functional society. They elected a leader. They made clothes and shelter. They found food. They created a chess set and playing cards, though they ultimately threw away the playing cards because they realized one of the men tended to get in fights when he lost.
1: And they teach each other their the foreign languages. You know, they set up a school to teach each other stuff. They make a bellows. They are able to kill seals and tan the leather and then use that to make a bellows to forge iron.
0: And two years later, when they were able to get off the island, they were all alive. The 19 men who came ashore from the Inverco, meanwhile, who, by the way, never bumped in to the men from the Grafton, they had not started off working together and they never really formed a strong community. Which is why, when they were rescued about a year after their wreck, only three of the 19 remained. Christakis argues that too frequently, researchers have focused on our ability to see others as enemies, as different from us, maybe even as inferior and expendable. But, he says, the crew of the Grafton shows us something else. We often feel, deep within us, compelled to build functional, caring societies from the ground up.
1: You know that that equally we are prone to these wonderful qualities of of love and friendship and cooperation and teaching and and so forth. And so, so I thought that this bright side had been denied the attention it deserves, and that I should focus on that. And furthermore, eventually, as I began thinking more deeply about this, I realized that these positive, good qualities that we have must necessarily, on balance, be more powerful than the bad qualities. That they are actually more important. And. The reason for this, if you just want to think about it, is that um, if every time our ancestors, if every time one person had approached, you know, you, if someone approached you and was mean to you or filled you with lies, you know, false information about the environment or, or killed you, you would be better off living a solitary life, living apart from that person. So I think the benefits of a connected life must have outweighed the costs and that these benefits were what I wanted to focus my attention on.
0: If those benefits are something that we innately latch on to, it stands to reason that kids must also have a strong sense of them, even before they know much of anything. That, of course, was the idea behind that forbidden experiment. But it's also the idea behind lots of recent, a lot more humane experiments that have been done with small children. And we're talking very small children, like just a few months old.
1: And they are shown little puppet shows, for example. And in the puppet show, there might be, let's say, a yellow circle and a green triangle and a blue square puppet. The shapes and the colors are scrambled in the experiment to make sure it's not that the kid likes yellow or squares more than blue or triangles. And a little show is put on for the child, in which, for instance, the blue triangle puppet is trying to push the yellow circle uphill, and then the green square is preventing this from happening. Or in another scenario, the puppet, let's say the green square, is helping the other puppet to perform this you know, difficult task. And so these little shows are shown to the children. You can use eye tracking to see that they're attentive. And then you offer them puppets. And they prefer the helper puppets. You know, they're not idiots. They, they, uh, and there are other similar kind of experiments which you can do, which show that from a very young age, we have the capacity to tell the difference between kind and unkind individuals. And furthermore, that we are more prone in other experiments, more prone to reward or reciprocate kindness. That when we see someone nice, we want to help that person. And when we see someone that's mean, we want to ignore or punish that person.
0: Um, Those kinds of experiments, do you think that that tells scientists something about people that maybe we didn't already understand?
1: Well, this is a complicated question because many of the features that are good, deeply good and fundamental about human nature, we take for granted – Or we don't realize how amazing they are. So I mean that in two different ways. For example, you may take for granted that people cooperate with each other, but you may not understand, like, how extraordinary it is that we evolve this capacity uh, to cooperate. Or you may take for granted that we have friends, but it turns out that friendship is a very unusual a phenomenon in the animal kingdom. We, we humans don't just mate with each other. You know, many animals do that, obviously, but we befriend each other. We form long-term non-reproductive unions to other unrelated members of our species. This is a very unusual behavior. Very few other animals do this. We do it. Elephants do it. Certain other primates, certain whale species do it. And so you live your whole life taking for granted the fact that we have friends not realizing that other animals don't do this thing.
0: Um, Let me stick with kids for a minute here. Um, At the same time, and this kind of feeds into a lot of the division that I think we see now in America, but elsewhere around the world, too. Kids are also very attuned to liking people who are more like them. Um, And people who aren't like them, they like less, right?
1: Yes. It's so depressing. (laughs) This is like one of the most depressing things that you know, of my scientific career, you know, as I've been thinking about human nature for the last 10 years, this unavoidable, clearly innate preference for our own groups, which goes by a number of terms. One of them is in-group bias or tribalism. And and there are lots of ideas about this. Uh, You you alluded to one experiment. Let's just set the stage with that experiment. So there's another famous experiment that was done in which um, very small children were randomly assigned different t-shirt colors. Uh, the kids were tested to make sure they understood that they didn't do anything to deserve the color. They the kids were able to comprehend that this was an arbitrary assignment. You know, some kids were given yellow t-shirts and s- some were given green t-shirts, and then the kids were experimentally shown, let's say, images of kids wearing the other t-shirt color. And just from that very trivial so-called minimal groups hypothesis or this sort of minimal treatment where they were just assigned different T-shirt colors, those children suddenly decided that the – you know, the green T-shirted kids suddenly decided that the yellow T-shirted kids were awful children. You know, they they deserve to be punished. You know, they should not have any toys. I mean just – really just scratching the surface of human beings is able to elicit – even in very young children, elicit this preference for one's own group. So then you can imagine when you add to that language and religion and culture and geography and all of these other ways in which adults are distinguished one from another, that those forces are accentuated and, and much more powerful even in grownups. So it's depressing. But we evolve this capacity for a set of very important reasons. And these are not all proven. So some of this is speculative. But one of the reasons has to do with our capacity for cooperation So it turns out that this ability to draw a distinction between us and them likely co-evolved with our ability to help each other because what this ability to draw a distinction between us and them does is it reduces the scale of the demands being made on the people. Let me give you an example. Imagine you had a a population of 1,000 people and everyone was indistinguishable from everyone else Mm -hmm. and you go to those people and you say to them, look, you got to cooperate with other people in this group and each person looks at all these other people in the group and they're like i'm anonymous in this group if if i'm kind to someone how can i be sure they'll be kind back to me and furthermore there're too many of them i just can't don't have enough time or money or effort or resources to help all of these other 1000 people and and so as a result of that nobody let's say in this toy example let's say nobody out of the 1000 they all give up nobody cooperates with anyone else if now what you do is, is you do something that scientists call adding structure to the population, let's say you now – and there are many ways of doing that. But let's say for now you just divide it up into four groups, you know, green, yellow, blue and purple. And now you say to each person, now could each of you just cooperate with your T-shirt colored group? And so now, all of a sudden, everybody has a simpler challenge. They're smaller groups. They uh, can identify, you know, like if I help a person with a green T-shirt, then maybe other green T-shirted people will help me. So I'm willing to take more of a risk. And as a result of this, now you might have the intuition that among those thousand people, now that you've so-called added some structure to the population, the average level of cooperation will rise. But the depressing thing to me is why then do we take the next step? not just of, let's say, loving our own group, but why do we, let's say, hate the other group? You know, why don't we just feel neutral about the other group? You know, you just say, okay, well, I like green T-shirted people, but uh, I just am neutral about everyone else. Right, right, right. Right. Yeah, why do we then think the yellow T-shirted people, you know, they're awful people, let's say, and untrustworthy or whatever? So this is is a conundrum, and there are various theories as to why these have evolved. But an important thing to emphasize is that this – This quality isn't just seen in humans. It's also seen in other animals. So one of the distinctive ironies about trying to understand human beings is that often we can get better insight into human nature by understanding animals.
0: Okay, let's pause here just briefly. Uh, And when we come back for our last few minutes with Nicholas Christakis, author of Blueprint, The Evolutionary Origins of a Good Society, we're going to talk more about how far we will go to sacrifice for others. And what sort of trajectory we might be on when it comes to building caring societies. We've got lots more about the experiments and stories from history that we've talked about during this discussion, from shipwrecks to examinations of why babies like kind people better. That's all at innovationhub.org. From PRX and WGBH Radio, I'm Kara Miller. This is Innovation Hub. We'll be back in just a minute. I see friends shaking hands. Welcome back to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. In the summer of 2012, a shocking event caught America's attention. You see images like that, and you, sh- you can hear the panic, you can hear the chaos. You can see kind of the folks scrambling to get out of what must have been a horrible scene, uh, and and it, and it just brings back these memories of uh, of Columbine. It brings back memories of Virginia Tech, these other mass shootings that the country has seen uh, in recent years. In Aurora, Colorado, a man opened fire on a theater of people watching the movie. The Dark Night Rises.
1: As I dug into that case, it was very moving. I was often in tears, you know, reading the details of these particular stories.
0: That's Nicholas Christakis, who directs the Human Nature Lab at Yale. And the stories he's talking about are ones in which someone in the movie theater sacrificed their life for someone else, which in this single movie theater in Aurora, Colorado, didn't just happen once or twice. At least five people perished in the theater protecting other people. Four of them were men protecting their girlfriends, women that in some cases they'd only been dating for a few months. Women who told very similar stories about how in an instant before they could even really register what was happening, they were physically shielded by someone else's body. And that action, Christakis says, raises a very important question.
1: Why do we humans not just mate with each other, but we love each other? Love is, I have to be very careful when I talk about this, but we have this capacity for love, which is typically seen, but is not always seen, with the people we have sex with. And it can be seen in straight or gay unions. It can be seen in monogamous or polygynous or polyandrous unions. But the feature, the quality that's there is this sentimental attachment to the people that we are having sex with. Now, why is that? I mean, we could have evolved to have sex with other people without feeling that kind of an attachment, but we don't.
0: Christakis has spent years studying why we create these sorts of connections to each other, unlike those created by most other species. And he's the author, most recently, of the book Blueprint, The Evolutionary Origins of a Good Society. He argues that in many ways, we've evolved to be good, to cooperate, to love, to build things. And that these are features of human nature which are often ignored in a world that's focused on the bad things we do and the divisions between us. What happened in Aurora, he believes, is proof of those amazing features. Indeed, giving up everything to help someone else isn't just something that we do for our partners or our children or people related to us. It happens, Christakis says, in other ways that should get our attention, like on the battlefield.
1: And one of the reasons that these soldiers are willing to lay down their lives for people to whom they're not related, they're not reproducing with these people, and yet they sacrifice their lives for their friends. And they very much describe it that way. And militaries since time immemorial have exploited this quality to cultivate among soldiers this sense of friendship within small groups. Sometimes by explicitly recruiting pairs of friends, for example, during the Civil War or during the Second World War, many Americans enlisted with their friends. Advertising campaigns highlighted that you would be embarrassed to not enlist if your friends were enlisting. So groups of friends enlisted and the army often made efforts to keep them in the same units Hmm. or after they were enlisted – to um, cultivate a sense of intimacy and friendship amongst these very small groups. And you have many, many examples of uh, heroism where people sacrifice their lives for friends. So—
0: We've talked a lot about kids and how even though they do gravitate toward the good in other people, um, they're also pretty good at seeing divisions between themselves and others, even if those divisions are totally random and meaningless. Um, How do you reconcile then those two strains of research, right? The inclination toward the good versus kind of that inclination to separate from others.
1: So um, one of the ways that we humans, the key way we humans communicate our identity is with our faces, so you probably take it for granted that every human face is unique. But why? I mean, why do we have unique faces? Why don't we all just have a human face, you know, like a penguin, for example, just all look the same? So there's a reason, and it's it's actually an evolutionary luxury that we all have. The the regions of our genome that code for our faces tend to be particularly variable, and there's this all this biology about how how our faces come to be so variable. you know. Every human face in principle should look different if it's to function properly, but every human pancreas in principle should function the same if it's to function properly. So it's the point of our faces is that they look different. And not only that, not only do we all ex- have faces that make us look different, but we also uh, can recognize this. So you have the capacity in your brain. You devote a lot of brain power and energy to being able to distinguish one face from another. So we can signal and detect individual identity. Earlier, we talked about how if you have a 1,000 people, you can add structure by partitioning those 1,000 people into like T-shirts of four colors. Another way you can add structure is to introduce friendship. So what you do is you evolve the capacity for individuals to have particular attachments to other people. So now in this 1,000 group of a 1,000, instead of everyone mixing with everyone else, you tell everyone, you know, each of you is going to have three or four or five friends And just cooperate with your friends. Mm -hmm. So all of a sudden, everyone's like, oh, I can do that. I can be nice to three or four or five people. Well, now here too, we've now added structure to the population. And as a result of that, compared to the contrasting circumstance in which we said nobody was cooperating, now by adding a little structure, everyone is just cooperating with their friends. And as a result of that, again, you get lots more cooperation in the system. All right. So we've talked about friendship, we've talked about tribalism, we've talked about identity. Let's go back now to the problem of tribalism. Imagine you have divisions in our society right now, lots of people along different group lines, you know, immigrant status or religion or whatever, at each other's throats. We have a couple of ways of approaching this. One way is to go up a level and to the level of the United States and take advantage of our capacity for drawing distinctions and say, actually, what really matters is that we're all Americans. Right, right, right. And that's the kind of group membership that is salient or should be salient. These group boundaries, you know, are arbitrary. We've already established that T-shirt color will do it. There are arbitrary boundaries. We don't have to stick to those boundaries. Our brains are equipped with the capacity to redefine the boundaries, relax them, and go up a level. But another solution to tribalism is to go down a level to the level of individuals And this too has been a part of our history and this is exactly what Martin Luther King was arguing when Martin Luther King said that he looks forward to the time when his children are judged by the content of their character rather than the color of their skin. But what Martin Luther King is saying is he's saying each person is a unique individual and should be judged as such, not by virtue of their membership in a group. And so now the idea is, well, each of us should be forming friendships we should, we should get structure in our population by befriending other people, let's say, across these tribal boundaries. And that will allow us to organize ourselves in a way to cooperate without relying on those divisions.
0: And, and do you think in this moment that that kind of transcendence is possible? Because it feels like... Maybe the forces of history are pushing the other way, or maybe the parts of us that are not so great at seeing the good in others, maybe those parts are winning out.
1: Well, I think there's a couple of points I would make in response to that. First of all, there are a set of uh, scientists and uh, writers who've been writing about the arc of human history in this regard. So notably, Steven Pinker has written a wonderful book called Better Angels of Our Nature. Jared Diamond has written some books that talk about you know, how groups you know, survive or collapse And what these books tend to emphasize is the action of historical forces or technological forces acting over centuries. So, for example, there's no doubt that over the last couple of hundred or 300 years, the scientific and technological advances of the Enlightenment coupled with the philosophical sort of discoveries or emphases of the Enlightenment, you know, on the equality of human beings, on democratic principles. Now, to be fair, these weren't always uniformly applied to everyone – You know, we're still a work in progress, but nevertheless, the Enlightenment sort of marked a shift where there was an emphasis on every person's intrinsic worth and, you know, the quality of humans and all of this stuff. And all of those technological and philosophical forces over the last two or three hundred years have no doubt been improving the well-being of the planet. And we lose sight of that. You know, we are living much longer lives, much safer lives, much healthier lives, much richer lives, much more creatively enriched lives over the last two to 300 years. There's no doubt about that. And so we humans, you know, sadly are very interested in bad things, you know, in wars and murders and fires and stuff. So we may lose sight of that, but I think it's very important to keep track of that. But Hmm. my argument is that we don't just need to rely on the action of relatively recent historical and cultural forces that are shaping us to be good. Actually, more ancient, more powerful— deeper forces are at work propelling us to make a good society. Evolutionary, not just historical forces, forces acting over hundreds of thousands of years that have shaped us to have these proclivities, these capacities to love each other and befriend each other and cooperate with each other and teach each other things. All of these things are wonderful qualities that are innate to us and that we have, and we have. We can't escape them. And so my argument is, is that despite the periodic reversals despite the kind of ascendant populism and tribalism worldwide despite you know the threat of climate change despite you know I'm not a Dr Pangloss right I'm not a you know I'm not saying it's the best of all possible mm-hmm. worlds I am well aware that every century is replete with horrors you know there are inquisitions and pogroms and colonialism and slavery and violence and warfare I mean even today I think there are 30 or 40 million enslaved people around the world, principally in the northern part of Africa and some parts of Asia. This is true, almost chattel slavery, which is awful. So I'm well aware of all of these awful things that we have, but but we are also good. And I think we we shouldn't lose sight of that. We should recognize that there are these, these forces acting over great long time sweeps and over short sweeps all of which are propelling us to be good. I finished the book with uh, the arc of our evolutionary history is long, but it bends towards goodness. And, you know, obviously I'm aping MLK again, but but that's – I believe that.
0: Nicholas Christakis is the author of Blueprint, The Evolutionary Origins of a Good Society. He's also a physician and he's the Sterling Professor of Social and Natural Science at Yale. Nicholas, thanks for being here.
1: Thank you so much for having me, Kara. I see skies are blue.